Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah... <laughs> They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. You can walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to now. I'm down Swanfield, and we'll see them up. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. It's glorious Thursday, the... 11th of June? 11th of June, Ken, 11th of June. And I've got some bad news and good news. Uh, the bad news is... Everyone wants to hear the bad news first. Uh, if you ever ask, do you want to hear the good news or the bad news? No one ever says, I want the good news. Yeah. So best just to get the bad news out The of bad news is that Owen McDevitt is not here. Hmm. Uh, his friend, Smithy, is getting married. And, uh, well, he's not getting married this weekend. No, but uh, he is, however, going... Every another day off down the line, I suppose, for that. Another day off down the line. What are the other? We, that's what we should have said to him. We uh, should have said that to McDevitt. You can go to the stag or the wedding, but not both. Mm. Well, Owen McDevitt is such an important part of this that he's, well, he's the best man for this wedding, which means that Owen McDevitt is currently in Valencia uh, trying to supervise a group of 30, yes, 30 men mm. uh, as they make their way around that uh, beautiful Mediterranean city. So you can imagine what an amazing weekend he's already having. <laughs> and, uh, and indeed, the 30 men under his charge. Yeah. Uh, I, can, I can safely say... Oh, and do you know the way to this restaurant? No, hang on, I just, it's just, I'm trying to... <laughs> <laughs> he's got his good... His data roaming charges are oh, probably... I hope he race. bought a data bundle. Well, uh, to be honest, if we, we, if we know the man like we think we do, Ken, uh, <laughs> there is a printed itinerary. He doesn't need to be data roaming. He's Everyone, got all of his data roaming from it, his wife. Owen like, is, is currently there. Going, I can't believe that everybody has already lost their printed itinerary. Yeah, yeah. What, are, what are these people thinking? How do they expect someone's, it? Someone's going to call him it like an Irish town. And go, Sorry, where's that bar that we're meeting? Well, it's yeah, in the printout. It's, 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 it's just, I've given you the printout. It's actually there. So I've emailed just, it to you as well. So if, you could just, if you're going to use your data roaming, <laughs> not me, because I did my homework. I know I've, what you're doing. Up. The good news is, well, Kieran Murphy's spoiled surprise. We welcome back Kieran Murphy. Yeah, well, hello there, Ken. Hello. Uh, you've been away, Kieran, in uh, in Italy, I believe. Yes. Province of Sicily. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world, funny as any. This uh, is all. I mean, I, I, I don't know what's going on here. This is all. You know, we're all going to the Mediterranean all the time. I mean, it is June. That's the point. It is a. It's the brief holiday season. There mm-hmm. are very few, very few holidays at any other time of the year. But you, you went to Sicily, Kieran. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, Fionn Davenport is the Irish Times travel editor. He's far better able to handle your queries. But I mean, if you if you want a, a little something different, you know, if you from outside of the industry, yeah. if you've got any questions yeah. about Sicily, without fear or favour, just just come just come knocking on my door because I am now at this stage I can safely say a student of Sicily, yeah. uh, a lover of Sicily. Um, you know, I, I I feel like I've gotten to the very marrow of what it is to be Sicilian, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, had a brilliant time. Uh, always a good sign when you're on holidays if you haven't watched any television whatsoever, right? Yeah. But it kind of came to last night, and I was... Well, it wasn't last night, it was Tuesday. My, my last night in the... Was, come on, we'll, we'll turn on this. Might have a look at some of this world-famous Italian television. Yeah, let's, let's check it out. First thing I see is... Well, I'm kind of flicking around, you know, and there's some, some sports, so I, I stop at this sport, just have... Have a look, right? Yeah. Kind of seems to be some like kind of grainy footage from the 1970s, but not of it. Seems far too mucky to be Italian. So I bear with it for 30 seconds, and then I bear with it for a minute, and then it's 90 seconds, and it becomes increasingly clear that what I'm watching is nothing other than the entire potted history of Leighton Orient Football Club. Leighton Orient. Yeah. Right. Okay. And I. Obviously, this knocks me for six completely because it is being presented. This is Italian as, TV. It's not like yeah, you're watching no, no. Sky this is Sports Ag- Agon, the Agon Channel, okay, on uh, Italian television, and you know it really was. It looked as if they were one of the powerhouses of European football. I mean, yeah. watching it to, to the untrained eye, Leighton Orient are up there with Real Madrid, yeah. you know, Bayern Munich, Barcelona. This is the standard of club we're talking about. So I'm, I'm looking at this. Club. What? What is go- what is going on here? Yeah, um, and then so I, I obviously get out my phone. Data roaming, be damned, Ken! I must get to the bottom of this. Yeah, Leighton Orient, Italy, is my Google search. Yeah, and uh, it turns out that there is a a, pr- a prime time reality TV show in Italy dedicated to finding the next new star of Leighton Orient Football Club. Okay, um, which is really. Which is really quite something. I mean, I did oh, not... Oh, right, okay. So so Celtic did something a bit like this. So hang on, they sold to Italian TV model Francesco Bucchetti. Francesco Bucchetti. Yes. Um, he's, the, he's now the owner of Leighton Orient. Leighton owner, Francesco Bacchetti, wanted in Albania over fraud allegations. <laughs> it's, the first, it's the first hit on Google for Francesco Bacchetti. Well, if you scroll down there, I'm sure you'll see mention of this. Uh, he looks like a kind of, um, he's like a, a, an Alan Sugar type. A Mediterranean Alan Sugar, yes. Uh, he uh, appeared, he, he walked out on stage to rapturous applause. <laughs> Rapturous and entirely canned applause. Ita- authorities have issued arrest warrants for Italian and his mother. Um, <laughs> this guy looks as though he's well into his sixties, though. Yeah. Well, I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure. Maybe I'm overrated. Maybe it's just sun damage. But uh, yeah, well, I-, I don't know. Maybe late Orient will will get big. Never- nevertheless, it, w- it was it was it came as quite a shock to me. Were you following the John Delaney story? Story at all making any waves in Italy, <laughs> or is that another one of the countries where they didn't think um, a shrug of it the was such a big was, deal? Yeah. Um, well, I was following it mainly via your uh, Twitter feed, Ken. Mm. Um, I would, uh, I'd never go too far from at Ken Erdies. Yeah. Keeps me up to date. Yeah. You don't really give a score update, though. 
I, mean, I was trying to f- follow Ireland Italy, Ireland England, and all I could discover was that it was a really boring game. Well, I always get tired of, of tweeting during a match. Like I, I, I sort of tweet the first kind of minute or so, or I like maybe say, "Oh, the crowd is saying this or that," and then it's kind of like, "Well, why am I tweeting about this? Everybody can see it anyway." And mm. I wasn't thinking of you actually. See, this and, is it. And then I just this forget exactly about it. Exactly. It. You've you've just put it there in a nutshell. You weren't thinking of me. Giovanni Trapattoni was involved in the story. Obviously, he said um, he was. Seth Blatter said to him. Hey, uh, Trap, is there any way we can make this right? And uh, he said, uh, I, didn't, I do not know what he was talking about, Sir Trapattoni, as though butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. The former manager of Juventus. <laughs> <laughs> the former manager of, of Nothing Juventus. Nothing comes to mind. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but, he, the German. but he said, um, he said, uh, but I, I, I only know that when he offered me his hand, I did not give mine because I do not have two faces. So Trapattoni once again emerging with dignity uh, from a story which uh, caused John Delaney a few issues. I have to say we should maybe will we will I uh, introduce my own report on sport? Yeah, why not? Let's let's go for it. So uh, let me think. So obviously Scotland is the big game now coming up. Uh, Scotland, Ireland against Scotland, five o'clock Saturday evening. And uh, John Delaney uh, has been receiving further criticism, this time from the head of the Sc- his counterpart at the Scottish FA, who believes that revenge is a dish best mm. served cold. He, well, he bided his time, didn't he? This, uh, this revenge has been sitting in the freezer for uh, six months or so. Uh, but Since the ticket fiasco. The ticket, the ticket fiasco, which still, uh, I think, uh, the, the fans, uh, Grievesy Boys in Green and so on, have been asking uh, for further clarification of, of exactly what happened with those tickets that were given to Ireland, the 3,200 tickets, which wasn't enough. John Delaney complained at the time, and he was worried, if you remember, that uh, Irish fans, um, frustrated by the lack of tickets available from official outlets, would go uh, freelance and obtain tickets for themselves in all corners of Celtic Park, and with the result of God knows what kind of uh, dark uh, consequences, as um, you know, in, in the white heat of with the white heat of international football competition, um, Irish and Scottish fans turned to rend each other like rats in the stands of Celtic Park. Something along these lines was the apocalyptic vision that John Delaney had. Stuart Regan hotly disputed this at the time that this this is a likely outcome. Um, now asked to comment on John Delaney says it's been a challenging week for the FAI in lots of different ways. I've always worked on the assumption that if you haven't got anything positive to say, then don't say anything. Just keep your mouth shut. The Before FAI, continuing. The FAI have chosen to speak on a number of different fronts recently and, and last November. And we've just gone on quietly and prepared for the match. We'll continue to do that. The one thing I will say is that words such as tension and security were used last November used by uh, John Dionysi. And it was proven that Scotland fans, as we all knew they would, just got on with the game and intermingled with fans from Ireland and had a great night. There were no issues and we fully expect the same to happen again in Dublin. As much as we only have 5% of the ticket allocation, we expect around 10,000 Scotland fans to be travelling to Dublin and we expect them to get access somehow into the ground. I'm sure they'll have a great night. There was lots of scaremongering last November. There were no issues and we fully expect there to be no issues in Dublin. We expect a great match. And then, um, you know, the other... The, the, he, he wouldn't be drawn on the issue of the five million from FIFA because mm. that's obviously something a lot of people. This think wasn't one of those times when he said, "I'm not going to be drawn on the." But what I will, say, I will remain tight-lipped. Yeah. Uh, no, he he did say Scotland do things professionally, and we do things the right way. 
It has been recalled recently that the SFA were asked to pay £75,000 into the then FIFA Vice President Jack Warner's account for his personal use following the Scotland, Trinidad and Tobago friendly in 2004 when John Macbeth was our president. The person who asked for the payment was sent packing with a flea in his ear and warned that if he didn't, the police would be involved. Mm. So that's... Uh, but aren't, aren't these guys friend, brothers in arms in UEFA? You know, a very clear, unified organisation? Well, I don't know if, if, if Stuart Regan can necessarily claim the uh, same close relationship with Michel Platini that John Delaney has, uh, has been speaking about. I mean, I don't know if Stuart Regan calls up Michel Platini and Platini then carries out the suggestions. I mean, Delaney said, why don't we expand the Euros? Michel said, OK. John Delaney said, why don't we centralise the TV deal? Platini said, consider it done. I don't know if Stuart Regan has that kind of uh, sway at the top level mm. and maybe a bit of resentment maybe a bit of resentment well from maybe this. Stuart Regan should look a little further up the food chain I mean, See, the, you know I mean if, if, how's he going to get up the the greasy pole of footballing uh, politics well look if not if, if not to treat his betters his superiors such as John Delaney with a bit more respect I mean Regan it obviously isn't, didn't draw any explicit uh, connection between this uh, story of him of, of not him he wasn't there mm. uh, but the SFA refusing to pay uh, 75 grand to Jack Warner's slush fund and the, and the f- 5 million I, I can't help noticing though that the payment was going in the opposite direction uh, I'm sure that if uh, I was to represent Jack Warner and call up the FBI and ask for 75 grand I'd probably be told to uh, I'd probably be saying packing with a flea in my ear <laughs> as well. Um, Regan, under a little bit of fire at home for organising a friendly against Qatar, which uh, Scotland won 1-0. That was their warm-up. Um, he talked about uh, Qatar and Qatar Airways on Barcelona's shirt. Does anyone complain about that? Well, yes, lots of people, actually. Um, but I suppose there you go. Okay, what else have you got for me there, Ken? So Ireland, obviously, are the other half of this equation. We were, we're going to be talking later on to uh, Graham Hunter um, uh, and Richie Sadler uh, about this game from the two perspectives and, and focusing maybe a bit on uh, something that uh, Gordon Strachan told Graham in a recent uh, podcast interview uh, about how the differences between the typical approach to building team spirit uh, and the Strachan approach. Um, so we'll hear a bit more about that later. But from the Irish point of view... Um, it looks as though uh, Robbie Keane, having played the full match against Vancouver over the weekend and then flown back, uh, flown back here, maybe isn't uh, fully fit. Uh, that's, I suppose, that's going to be determined maybe more over the next day or two as to whether he's going to be able to play. He's a little out of the conversation this week, is he? Well, he, you know, because he was playing a game for his club, he wasn't there for the England's match, so he sort of, uh, he kind of missed out a little bit. But you would rank his chances of starting on Saturday as pretty slim, would you? I wouldn't say uh, necessarily slim. I, I, re- I honestly don't know. I mean, he didn't start in the first game uh, again, away to Scotland. But, of course, Martin O'Neill clearly thinks there's a difference between home and away matches. I mean, this is something that he's talked about with Wes Hillen before. We saw there was, if anyone hasn't seen it, criticism from Eamon Dunphy recently along the lines of it's a sackable offence to suggest that uh, Wes Hillen can't... It's not that he can't be trusted. I can't remember the exact quote from O'Neill, but Dunphy was essentially saying maybe Wes is more of a player for the home games than the away games. This is, he was saying, mm. that's ridiculous. If he would, Dunphy was saying, if, you know, a manager who thinks that, that's a sackable offence. You know, a good player is a good player. It doesn't matter whether you're home and away. I mean, the, I suppose the logic is that if you're playing an away game where you think the other team is probably going to have most of the ball and a lot of your game is going to be about chasing and trying mm. to win the ball back, then maybe 
Wes Hoolan isn't really suited to that type of game. Maybe you want to, maybe you want somebody like John Walters who you can maybe hit with passes from isn't further this, back. Isn't this, this just basic footballing philosophy that has evolved over 120 years? That yeah. this is this you know this is just an idea that's out there for better or worse. You can argue it. You can argue the toss over it on in relation to certain players or whatever. But the argument that you pick runners away from home because you're going to have to work harder because you don't have the ball as much as you would at home. I mean, that's just... That's pretty basic stuff. I mean, the, the other the other side of the argument is... Obviously this is Billy you, Bean type... No, <laughs> no, really. Of, uh, this is like Walter Win- Winterbottom. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean... Put him, this is basically put him under pressure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the other can most side of it. Put them under pressure. If well, maybe the best way to put them under pressure is when you do have the ball. The, the time that you do have the ball, make sure that you use it well. Maybe it, it becomes even more important if you're going to be relatively starved of possession to be able to make the possession that you do have count. So either way, there are arguments for and against it. Um, to say it's sackable offence, well, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't agree necessarily. Um, with that, it's just a different uh, different yeah. point of view. But I do I do think that uh, well I do rather hope that he that he ends up playing in this game. Who then that is because uh, I don't think that we actually have any other way any other effective way of playing. Maybe um, it's not going to be that effective, but this is the only thing we can do. Yeah, and uh, I, I didn't mean to be dismissive at all of Robbie Keane there. And to be honest, there is a part of me that thinks Robbie Keane should start this game on Saturday because we don't create that many chances. Mm. And if you said to me they aren't going to create four chances. And Shane Long is going to be on the field for all four of those chances while they're being created. Shane Long scored the goal against Poland. You know, he got the chance. He scored the goal. When is Shane Long? I mean, it's difficult for Shane Long to score from the bench. You know, there is this argument that Robbie Keane, oh, he, you know, he'll get you, he'll get you a goal. If you look at his record, you know, he's got, watch, you know, nearly a goal every two games over almost 140 caps at this stage. Mm. Um, that's true, but it is difficult for Shane Long to sort of keep up with, his, with Robbie Keane scoring if he is sitting on the bench. Yeah, certainly. I mean, but I'm, I'm talking about Shane Long over the course of two years at club and international level. You know, Still like, the, high, the, the, the Irish player who's the highest placed in the Premier League, Shane Long. There's no, nobody playing for a club higher than Southampton who he plays for. Mm. I mean, he's, according to the league, the best player in our, uh, in our squad. Um, so, you know. Would you know. say that Shane Long fired Southampton to... Seventh place in the Premier League. No, but you know Southampton, who turned out to have a pretty serious team this year, reckoned that Shane Long was worth spending twelve million on. Um, I mean, the fact is that there aren't any other Irish players who can say that. There aren't any other Irish players uh, who can say that uh, you know a well-regarded team in the Premier League considered them to be worth mm. a big investment. Not yet. I mean, maybe the Everton players, um, but you know they had a poor season themselves. So. I don't know. I mean, there's only a certain amount you can say before... The, there was obviously a, a, an accident. Uh, a Ford Fiesta apparently hit the back of Roy Keane's Range Rover. Everybody was okay, including the person in the Fiesta, who, to be honest, you'd have to be most worried about when you hear the, the vehicles Two involved. The vehicles involved, yes. Um, uh, so not a lot else uh, going on in terms of... I mean, nobody really wants to talk more about the John Delaney stuff. I mean, there's, there's FIFA-related things uh, happening. But it's it's almost like FIFA fatigue uh, setting in at this point. Um, they're postponing. That's certainly what they're hoping. I think at FIFA. <laughs> I mean, isn't that basically what Sepp Blatter's daughter said? Yeah. Well, oh, you know, people get we've been, we've been here this. before. You know, God. This, this, you, all you got to do is just ride it out. Just 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 hang on in there for two or three weeks, and then the circus will move elsewhere. The difference this time is obviously that there's things happening like the Swiss Attorney General seizing a bunch of um, data from FIFA's offices 
um, the FIFA having to announce that they're postponing the bidding process for the 2026 World mm. Cup until they find in out fairness, what happened it, in the last one. It didn't work out very well for Sepp on this particular occasion, but uh, his daughter did speak from years of experience. Yeah. The, the, previously, you wouldn't have had these things being sort of drip-fed into the international discourse, so people really would be talking about something else. Um but, you know, we'll talk more about FIFA when, when something big happens. The, um, there was some interesting quotes also from Michael O'Neill, the Northern Ireland manager, in The, uh, in the Guardian. There's an interview with them. And just talking a little bit about his own... I mean, obviously, Northern Ireland doing pretty well at the moment. He says, I've watched games from Burton against Chesterfield to Fleetwood against York to Old Trafford to Rangers against Queen of the South. Twelve months ago, I was watching Paddy McNair play for Man United under-19s, but that's where the lads were. We have, fifth, we have less than 50 players in the four leagues in England, the top two in Scotland, full stop. A lot of those players are in League 1 and League 2. Roy Carroll's in League 2 now. There are 12 or 13 players in League 1. It's a big jump to playing international football. The Scottish Premiership is a big jump up to international football. Um, talks about then player eligibility. Obviously, we feel a bit sorry for ourselves about Jack Grealish and the fact that it looks as though he's not going to play for us. Um, <laughs> you do have to remember that there's, you know, probably in Northern Ireland, people not feeling too sorry for us. Um, he talks about the knockbacks he's had from, you know, he researches players' eligibility, discovers they can play for Northern Ireland, and then they just say, uh, no, I'm not really interested in playing for Northern Ireland, so just forget it. So he has to go away and start again. But then there's the case of the Northern Irish players who end up playing for us. Uh, and he talks a little bit about the uh, rule. Uh, it's very unfair. Uh, it's grossly unfair for us to develop young players, train them, take them to tournaments, then if the option comes up for them to play for the Republic of Ireland, there's nothing to stop them doing it. I have no problem if there's a bloodline there. That's the same as any other country. I think these associations should be able to come to an agreement on it. My understanding is we've tried to do that. They have said the rules are the rules and we are allowed to do it. It's pretty hard for a country of our population with so few players. Um, yeah, I mean, that is, the, that, that is uh, true. It's very hard for Northern Ireland. Uh, the rules, however, are the rules. The rules are the rules. Yeah, we yeah, yeah. I mean, we have we've taken quite a few of their players. Nobody since um, Martin O'Neill has become the um, manager. Maybe Martin O'Neill's got a bit more respect uh, for the team he used to play for. Well, nobody, um, nobody since Michael O'Neill has taken over as well. I mean, maybe the, it's a case of players feeling as though. You know, this is a team that could be going places. I mean, at the moment, they look more likely to qualify than we do. Um, you know, um, I, th I do think, however, you know, that the real... The problem is that if you have a situation where somebody wants to play for the Republic, they're from the North, then who's, who's going to tell them they can't? You know, I mean, it's, a, it's an impossible thing to enforce. Like, it's, he's, the way that Michael O'Neill has said it there, it's kind of almost an agreement, like a gentleman's agreement between the two FAs. To say, okay, you know, we won't take your players, you won't take our players. In practice, it only tends to flow one direction, um, from i.e. from Northern Ireland to the Republic. But you're kind of ignoring the fact that the player there also has, is an autonomous agent. He also has the right to decide which team he plays for. If the rules say he can play for either country, then, um, you know, the, FA, the FAI is hardly going to say, well, actually, we've got a gentleman's agreement with Northern Ireland not to, not to pick... Um, anyone who's kind of born there who's already played for them. So even though you want to play for us, you know. So I, I, I think it's, uh, yeah, and it's much less of a nebulous uh, concept, you know, the idea of nationalism. Uh, and I mean that in the global sense as opposed to just in the parochial, uh, parochial Northern Irish sense. That 
you know, it's, if you're asking Jack Grealish, it's like, well, Jack Grealish is a you know 19 year old kid, you know, who plays football, and this international football thing is like another way to play football. But mm. actual nationalism, what I feel in the core of my being about where I'm from or the country, or the country that I uh, most feel aligned to, that's a question people in Northern Ireland ask. You know, they have had that conversation, that internal uh, conversation in their heads since the, yeah. they can remember. Since brain function began, effectively. They, they are confronted with it uh, more actively, uh, more viscerally. Questions of, of national identity than maybe people in any other part of Europe. Uh, well, uh, most of the parts of Europe. Anyway. So that's that. Um, just briefly, I see uh, a survey. This is one of the fascinating surveys that emerges every so often, talking about the uh, most marketable European football players. Who do you think is uh, number one there? The most marketable European football player is that. Uh, players based in Europe or Europeans of uh, players of European nationality. Oh, I'm so going to say um, I'm going to say Cristiano Ronaldo. Cristiano uh, Ronaldo. Eighty three percent of the people on the planet know who he is. <laughs> Five out of six. Eighty five percent of all men and eighty percent of all women have heard of Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, but the second most uh, marketable player on the list was actually a surprise to me. Mm-hmm. Huh. Uh, okay, biggest league in the world. Uh, I'm going to say Wayne Rooney. Wayne Rooney. Uh, yeah. in, in fact, Biggest Wayne Rooney club is in the world. <laughs> Wayne Rooney is the correct answer for the second. Uh, a good bit behind Ronaldo. I was struck though by the um, Iniesta. Iniesta, I think, was third. I can't remember this in front of me now, but Iniesta was definitely high up. Um, for example, in his native Spain, ninety-nine percent of the population know of World Cup and European Championship winner Andres Iniesta, recent man of the match in the Champions League final, of course, where ninety percent aspire to be like him, and eighty-seven percent say they trust him. <laughs> 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 he is—he does have a trustworthy face. Thirteen percent of people not so sure. Yeah, you know. Would I leave my car with Andres Iniesta? A guy, in some sort of an emergency where I had to throw my keys at anyone. Just to say, right, can you park that? I have to go. It's really my wife's about to give birth. Can you park my car? Yeah. Andres and yesterday. 87% of people in Spain say, yeah. Yeah, probably 13% say, I'm not sure. A guy with Do you know what? Actually, you go ahead. I'll just park the car. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I don't know. I don't know, Andres. I wouldn't want to keep you. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. want to keep you. I'll let you You're go. You're busy. You're busy. You know, sure. Another match. I'll, I'll let you go. And uh, yeah, I think we'll let this go at this point and move on. and because I think Richie Sather is just uh, waiting inside the door. He's getting ready to come in. The training pitch is a disgrace. And somebody's got somebody's to hold a hand up and say, it's like training on a car park. No, 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 no regrets about it, no. As soon as you ask me a question, I'm going to give you an answer. Who, John Delaney? He could have phoned me, of course he could have. Try my hotel room. <laughs> yeah, you can laugh. I was the World Cup. As an ex-player and as an Irishman, and I mean an Irishman, uh, born and reared here, then I, I thought I was entitled to give my opinion. Swinging in the backyard, pull up in your fast car, whistling my name. Which phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Open up a beer and you say get over here and play a video game. Why did you turn it off? I say you just going to let it ring. If that was my team, I'd go into the dressing room and I wouldn't even mention handball. I'd just say, why didn't someone put their head in it? France would definitely take it and Ireland never grabbed it. Usual. Usual stuff. Afraid of that next step. Mentally not strong enough. 
They can complain all they want, and all these players, they can complain all they want. It's not going to change. France are going to the World Cup. Get over it. Richie Sadler's here. How are you, Richie? Ken, how are you doing? You well? Very good. Um, the game on Sunday, I saw oh. you on television afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't seem to think it was a great game. I didn't. Did you? No. Yeah. My, my reasons, um, it basically had none of the elements that, that make up a good game in my mind. It, it, it was paid, played at a particularly slow pace, testimonial pace by, by the end. It's that withering Dublin summer heat, though, Richie. In fairness, I mean, yeah. it, it's it's suicidal to ask players to perform in that kind of those kind of conditions. It was it, it was just a non-event. As a, in sporting terms, it was a non-event. It must have made a lot of money for the FAI. It was, a, I assume, a, a reasonable fitness exercise for all the players. But as a spectacle for supporters who show up looking for a competitive match or for any sign that either team really cared about the result. It lacked. It lacked a lot. Were you surprised by that? I mean, this was Ireland against England. Not at all. No, it's like it, it, like we we've often spoken here about international friendlies and the the merits of them, given the pace that they're usually played at and the multiple changes in the second half or the withdrawals from squads because of injuries. Postseason friendlies, just by their nature, are are, are pretty drab and 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 often in the weeks leading up to the competitive fixtures in the last couple of years, there has been a friendly like this. And we've often had conversations afterwards saying, Did, was there any point in that? So all those elements combined in this one, um, I wasn't surprised it was it was the way it was. I don't think the fact that it was England is a big enough factor to, to change all of those things. It, it was. It used to be. I mean, mm-hmm. 20 years, this game had been played 20 years earlier, this would have been a big game. It wouldn't have mattered that it was in June or that it was a friendly um, mm. And that's obviously something big has changed there to make that no longer the case. Yeah, I think a lot of the players came out in the build-up and said, you know, it's England, it's a big game. And then afterwards they said, it's important we kept a clean sheet. And the manager was complimentary of some of the stuff. But you remember watching the match? Mm. Did you give any? Did you have any indication throughout that? Because you've seen all those players in... Real matches. Yeah, you've seen them all at full throttle. So each individual on the England team and the Irish team, you know what to compare them to when you're asking yourself, did those lads really give their all and, 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 and they didn't in this one and as to why that's the case it, I just think it doesn't have the importance anymore like mm. it's, it's an international friendly in the end of May early June like who cares about the result mm. in, in, the, in the world of professionalism in the world of elite sport where, where results matter the results of international friendlies they just don't. Well, Other sports do. Rugby, like you, you can get rugby lads on here and they'll tell you a friendly result against the All Blacks, the performance, the build-up, the team selection, everything matters greatly. Mm. You don't get those things in soccer. Well, there's international ranking points, for instance. I mean, they do eventually affect your seedings. But, I mean, there's also, you've got to think of the fans as well. I mean, the most disappointed man in the Aviva Stadium was little Owen McDevitt. Because <laughs> he paid... 90 euros each for two tickets. Uh. So he spent 180 euros. Now, he could have, he had the option of spending only 70 euros, mm. but he wanted to spend 180 because he wanted to make sure if he's going to spend money, he might as well spend an extra bit to get really good seats. Yeah, yeah. So consequently, he was close enough to the action to hear pretty much everything that every player said, uh, even if they were talking under their breath at a free kick. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's an awful fixture when you can hear. I was in the West Upper and I could hear some of the stuff that was being said in the pitch. You know, it's an awful game when you can hear the players interact with each other. Mm. It's just, just nothing is happening. There's no levels of interest there at all. But if it's going to be, if the game is going to be effectively 
just treated as a training session by both sets of players, and everybody kind of seems to everybody seems to accept that. Well, of course, I mean, it's an end of season friendly. You know, what else do you think was going to happen? Then why are they charging seventy or ninety euros for these games? I mean, uh, you know, that's the business plan, isn't because it? Because I mean, no one these, isn't these, here. these friendlies are the business plan for yeah. the FAI. They they need the money, so it, it, it from the point from their point of view, it's much better to have ten thousand people paying seventy quid than to have twenty five thousand people paying fifteen quid. Yeah, I mean that's just and that's just the way it is. I mean, if if you can if you can milk the ten or fifteen thousand people who are going to turn up all the time anyway, you got to milk them. That's that's the that's the business plan, surely. Yeah, well, that's pretty cynical. I mean, that, that, yeah. that probably I mean that probably is something like that is the case. But you know, I mean, because Owen isn't here, I'm gonna I'm gonna use a I'm gonna use the rugby analogy that mm. he would he maybe would use, uh, which is to say that. If you've if you've got a pre World Cup friendly for rugby for before the rugby World Cup, right? Everybody knows these friendlies are just a joke. It's literally just a training session, but you can come and see it if you like. But the tickets are going to be fifteen euros for that. You know, nobody's pretending that this is a serious. This is a, you know, nobody's saying this is going to be test match prices for something which isn't going to be that. So yeah. you know, can you treat well, the customers can, that way? But the RFU can sell out their ground six times. You know, every every year if if they have three home games in the Six Nations. Their November internationals, they can set up their ground, so they, you know, they have the freedom to do that. The FAI don't don't have that freedom. I don't think the FAI can afford not to have that approach. Mm. They can't bring, they can't have a fixture like this, a, a, an event which has the potential to earn a huge amount of money, and then adopt a policy which limits their earnings by for for, for what? Because you just want to be seen to do the right thing. I'm going to stick my neck out here and say doing the right thing you know, isn't always at the forefront of the FAI's mind. So you, 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 given their financial situation as well, there was no other way they were going to treat this fixture mm. than, to, to, than to put it as, are some, of the fi- are some of the tickets more expensive for England and Scotland? Did I hear that last week? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a ticket for the Scotland game available for less than 90 quid. I mean... They may not be super VIP tickets, but I'm, uh, to right. be honest, I'm not sure. I don't know what the ticket prices are. I haven't seen, but you know, they're you that the, the certainly the prices for England sound to me like the prices for a top qualifying match. Now I know a lot of people who went, and they were probably really young people, but not, like a neighbour of mine brought his kids, and they 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 had a great day out because they got to see Wayne Rooney, they got to see Raheem Sterling, got to see people that they only ever see on telly who they have in their mind as superstars, and they got really excited every time those players were on the ball. The, the, the fact that they were playing for the opposition didn't, didn't seem to matter to these kids. So a lot of people, I assume, got a lot out of it. But as a, as a, as a competitive fixture, I know there's no points at stake, but as, as, as in a, a sporting event, it, it was a non-runner. What about, the, as a, just as, you know, on its own merits, let's say then, as a training session, uh, which is preparation for the Scotland game, is the team that played against England, and just to remind everyone, it's Westwood, Coleman, Wilson, O'Shea, Brady, McCarthy, Whelan, Hendrick, McGeady, McGoldrick, and Murphy. Is this pretty close to the team that you'd expect to see against Scotland? I mean, it seems to me if you're going to have a last friendly before a big qualifier like that, the team that you play in a friendly should be pretty close to the team that you ultimately play in the qualifier. I, I, I think a lot of the Irish team kind of picks itself the the certainly the de- defence and, and, and probably the midfield. I think the decisions, which I'm not sure, I wouldn't stick my neck out and say what he's going to do yet, but up front, I think O'Neill has options there. I don't think Murphy will start. I don't think McGoldrick will start. I think it's down to Long plus one other. If he plays John Walters like he did in the Scotland away game, we better hope that they play a hell of a lot better because they weren't really 
they didn't have much impact in, in, in Scotland at all. Whether he plays Wes Hulhan or not, then it's down to what position he plays him in. Does he play him off Shane Long up front or maybe sacrifice McLean or somebody? Um, I don't know, but I think the defence picks itself and, and, and the midfield forward probably does too. So it's probably Long plus either Walters or Hulhan. Yeah, I, I saw... But you think that you think the fixture last week should have been a reflection of who's going to start? Well, I, I don't understand the point of playing a friendly if... Well, I mean, apart from the, the money-making angle, but, I mean, if you're going to have a friendly, it's your only match before your big match, then you should play, then why not have a look at the team that you want to... I mean, I'm, I, I imagine McGoldrick and Murphy are fairly doubtful selections for the for mm-hmm. this match, but everyone else I could see maybe starting the Scotland match. It, seemed, it would seem like a pointless exercise, completely pointless exercise, if if it was totally experimental side, that bore no relation to the competitive side. I suppose you can say, listen, Murphy and McGoldrick will both benefit from the time they had on the pitch. So if they're required, this is this is all the stuff you'd say publicly. So if they are required to come on and do something in the second half against Scotland on, on Saturday evening, last week's experience will stand to them. Mm. You, you could argue that's the case. Also, you're, you're, you're saving the legs of maybe some of the people who didn't start. These are the arguments you would use for not playing people who you know will start next week. There's, there's, you know you'll minimise the risk of injury and maybe some lads are more needing of a, a, a 90 minutes a game slows down the longer it goes on particularly in international friendly so maybe the first hour is far more be- beneficial to some players The question of who then is going to be a controversial one if he doesn't play um, Eamon Dunphy had some things to say about that over the last couple of days he said uh, is talking about Martin O'Neill he talks stupidly about Wes Hulahan being able to play at the Aviva but not being able to play away from home the pressure that puts on Wes when he goes on the pitch. The manager doesn't really believe in me. O'Neill's musing in public about whether to play Wes Hulen in away games. I mean, that's a sacking offence. So, uh, obviously he thinks he should play. I have to say, though, whether or not it's a sacking offence to say Wes Hulen isn't that great in away it's games. It's not a sacking offence. You don't think it is? I don't think anyone in the country, bar Eamon, thinks it's a sacking <laughs> offence to make that comment. <laughs> but, but the idea that he should play, I mean, I think he should play. We, we took a different approach in the away games against Scotland. We had Walters and Long. And it was obviously a more physical kind of approach. And what we found out was we're, we're not a team that can push anyone around. We just don't have the capacity to play that way, really. Scotland, if we want to turn it into that kind of game, are more than a match for us. So we might as well try the other way. which the is Hulan way. Yeah, we might as well, because it's, uh, you know... He, where's we were brutalised in Glasgow, really. You know, we were pushed around the place. And it's actually when you, when you see the Ireland team march out beside, you know, the... As you come out of the tunnel at the start of the game, mm. every single game for the last, I don't know how many years, you're looking at the Iron Team and go, oh my God, we're so small. We're a tiny, tiny team. Do we have a weights room? Like- <laughs> <laughs> In the country, anywhere, like, you know. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I think that going the Walters long route doesn't make a whole lot of sense when we've tried that and we've been pushed around the place. Well, it is something that apparently that's said of Irish... Um, Irish athletes who end up in, say, American college scholarships or young Irish players going over to play in England, that their upper body strength isn't really up to it. I don't know what the I don't know what the problem is there. I mean, are we not? Is there something? <laughs> is, is there some? Does everybody else have a culture of sort of getting up in the morning and doing fifty press ups uh, that we that we just somehow missed out on in this island here off to the side? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, our rugby players are man mountains. Our GA players are exemplars of physical prowess and fitness. Yeah. So I don't know what's going on with our, with our soccer team. Uh, I mean, one of the things has to do, I suppose, with, uh, with lifestyle, with um, 
uh, well, I, I mean, I don't know if this is actually anything to do with it, but certainly the way that we behave as a squad. Martin O'Neill is talking about this the other day, gave the players a day off on Tuesday. Uh, he said, I'm not, I've not been one for cooping people up. I treat these players in hopefully an adult fashion so far. So far in my time here, they've responded. <laughs> famous last words, of course, he <laughs> says. Now, famous last words. Presumably is O'Neill's ironic reference to the fact that sometimes if players get a day off, they might go and have a drink and then they might have another drink. And then who knows what might happen. They might be jumping up and down in a car on, on uh, Harcourt Street or whatever. The, these things have happened. He obviously doesn't expect that to happen. Um, Gordon Strachan uh, would be extremely surprised if that was to happen with his squad. And we'll just listen to what Strachan has to say about this because uh, this is from uh, Strachan's recent interview with Graham Hunter. Graham Hunter's doing a podcast now. The Big Interview, which uh, which you can check out. It's a very good podcast. Talked to uh, Strachan uh, in a recent episode. And here's uh, Strachan and Graham talking about the issue of booze in football. The first thing we went is, right, there's no alcohol in this. Don't even ask me any time. I don't care whether you beat Germany or whatever. There's no alcohol. There's no alcohol in the hotel. Don't ask at any time. Mm-hmm. And then the bombshell come when I say to the staff, you're the same. Mm-hmm. That's never been approached before. The staff can't have a drink. Mm-hmm. Because I'm saying, if you're asking these guys to do it, we can do the same. Mm-hmm. I don't like alcohol. <sighs> Generally, Phil. No, I think any problem that if you look in football or anything goes, you, you pick any problems, social problems that, that happens in a football, alcohol's involved somewhere. Which would include fan behaviour in our lifetime. Everything. Yeah. So uh, I'm fine when I'm in Spain, because you live there and I live there. Mm-hmm. But people don't fight, scrap, mm-hmm. do the rest of it. Even the football teams, you very rarely hear them singing and dancing in, in no. a hotel, which we've had recently here. Does so it, it's a protection for players as well to make sure that uh, they don't get themselves in trouble. So but you would argue, and it would be very easy to hear that argument. The I did drink when I, when I played. Yeah, okay. I did drink alcohol because that was the environment I got brought up in. Although it's clear that what you're saying is making obvious sense. And I'm not being sanctimonious because I live a little bit differently to that. So I'm not mucking about now. I'll, I'll, I'll go and have a drink and that's fine because that's my choice. But during my journalistic career, I had dealings with a manager who I like very much and who's been very successful and who very strongly advocated that if you drink together as a group, yeah. you win together. Now, I'm not in any way attacking that, but even the position you've taken as a manager goes against something that's been built up in the British culture that you can make sporting bonds, you can make team bonds by going through drinking sessions or drinking regularly yeah. together. Now, I, you don't I, believe I, that. I feel that's false because when we get a drink, there's a false bravado. And these kind of drinking things, I would say that a lot of times people follow each other. And they also say, right, we'll go play golf together. We'll go and play go-karts together. We'll go and whatever together. Yeah. But basically, winning together bonds you. Well, that was Gordon the Grinch. Strachan talking to Graham Hunter uh, on uh, Graham's podcast, uh, which I said, uh, as I said, you can check out on iTunes. But I mean, Strachan makes some interesting points there. No booze for anyone um, because it's fake. That feeling, that warm glow of camaraderie and and friendship, that's just delusion. When he he sets out his, his, his thoughts there in that way, it's very difficult to find fault in what he's saying. Well, the one thing, the the one thing he says there that I might look at and go, well, maybe this is just a personal view. He does say at one point, I don't like alcohol. <laughs> he just said, he says, he says that right in the middle. I don't like alcohol. And you're like, well, that's you, Gordon. You know, maybe you don't like alcohol, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody feels the same way. 
I actually missed that comment when he, that he said. It right there in the middle. Just the, he's, he's finishing <laughs> up. He kind of trails off as he said, oh, it's there. All right, it's there. I don't like alcohol. Well, I, that's, that's fine. That's fine. I, I respect that. I think he's, he's, Graham was right to say it. Obviously, there's a cultural thing. And even the moment, the thing you mentioned a moment ago with O'Neill giving people the day off earlier in the week. I don't know if, say, in Spain or Italy or, or other countries, if the players were given a day off, whether the immediate assumption in the minds of a lot of people would be go, I wonder how many of them are going to go in the piss. <laughs> like there, there was this, in, and I had it in my head, an immediate link, day off, alcohol. It shows an amazing lack of imagination by our uh, football team. But I think that's a that's a cultural thing. I think even if you've, you've never set foot in a well, pitch, do you, what do you expect to do? Go and see Newgrange? <laughs> so hang on. So you're saying there is no other option other than drink? No, not necessarily. But but uh, I mean, okay, we we obviously have a different attitude here. You know, we don't realise how out of sync our attitude is compared to the rest of the world. We're actually the weird ones here. Um, there was recently, you know, you know, Liam Brady was a guest on our uh, TV show. Mm. Recently, so I read his. Uh, I was reading stuff with him. There was an interview that he'd done, you know, twenty-five years ago or something. And he was talking about when he arrived at Juventus. Obviously, this was one of the main things he encountered. Oh, nobody drinks here. He Marco Tardelli was kind of his mate, and he took Marco Tardelli, um, uh, you know, on a day off after training one day. Oh, Marco, come on, let's go. You know, so, uh, and Marco's like, oh, okay, Liam, let's you know, let's do let's do what whatever it is you do. Uh, and so they went out. Now, the interesting thing about this is I, I recently read, like last week, an interview with Marco Tardelli where he talks about the same incident, right? In Marco Tardelli's account of the incident, essentially Brady takes him out, feeds him a load of booze, and Tardelli is completely annihilated. He's totally annihilated and then crawls out of the place, uh, you know, and isn't the same for two days afterwards and swears never to do this again. He's completely destroyed. In Brady's account of it, they go to a, a, a bar have two beers, and then Marco Tardelli stands up and says, well, that's great, Liam. See you tomorrow at training. Uh, and Liam is kind of going, well, you know, what are we, I thought I we were understand. building we're, team spirit here. We're just warming up here. Mm. We're, I, I felt a bit of team spirit beginning to, <laughs> beginning to develop. It's sort of the lightheadedness that comes with team spirit. You know what I mean? So, okay, we have a, we have a weird attitude. But, you know, are, are we totally deluded that this can actually help people to... Uh, people to maybe break the ice so should be able to get on a little bit better? No, it, it, it can. I, I remember actually when when I was called into the Irish team for the first time, myself and Colin Healy were, were the new additions to the squad. Everyone else had been in a squad before. And we met up on the Saturday evening and we knew we had training Sunday morning. But the Saturday evening was the first get-together the squad had. This is February 2002, since the playoff victory that secured qualification for the World Cup. So there was a night out planned. And I never drank before a night's training in Millwall. At club level, I just, I just never did it. it like, I'm sure you've all, at some point in your life, gone to the gym or had a training session and hang over. It's horrible. Like, it's really bad. So, but I remember sitting with Healy beforehand going, what do we do here? We're the new blokes, and I don't... I, I, I want to kind of meet everyone. A lot of the lads I hadn't actually met before. But so I just kind of got swept along and said, well... and it, did what I wanted it to do. I got to know the lads. A few things happened on the night. It was great crack. And you kind of laugh about them over the next couple of days. So it does serve a purpose. But I think the flaw with the argument that saying drink is vital or it's a, it's a necessary or vital component, it kind of dismisses all the other options you have mm. of having fun or getting to know your teammates or this phrase bonding. And, and, and sometimes 
I don't know what that means to some people, but it's like it's a lot of fun to do. And I think a lot of people who are promoting the idea of drinking as a as a vital component of team bonding just like drinking. Yeah. And like you touched on there, maybe Strachan, but I, I think there's far more weight and substance to what Strachan says than the flip side. Because if you're talking about elite sports people, first of all, there's the, the, you're, you're going against whatever your normal dietary regime is. No, no dietitian anywhere will say, go out and sing 10 points. That's what you should do in the build-up to a big game. There's the, the, the after effect you mentioned there, Tardelli said he was a couple of days recovering. Yeah. Right? It's, it's not good in anyone's preparation to be physically ropey for a couple of days, yeah. particularly in the build-up to a week. I mean, there and are, there's all the, 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 the things you can possibly do. What? Car- you could, carting, paintball, quasar? No, the things that can... Thunderland? The things you can possibly... right there. I, no, I'm sticking here with the drinking <laughs> bit. Oh. There are things that can happen while you were consuming alcohol. Oh, things go wrong. Which just won't happen if you go go-kart. That's very true. They just won't. And you, you, we can all think of our own personal what, experiences. What are the alternatives for a group of men? We went one day... High-spirited men to, to do together. We went one day paintballing. Mark McGee, who's Gar- Gordon Strachan's assistant with Scotland, who I absolutely know would be horrified with the no-drinking rule for the staff. But McGee got us all to go paintballing one day. And... Alan McNally was his mate who we obviously only knew from from Sky Sports McNally came along and it was England against the rest of the world and it was great crack you just you're out you're you're literally shooting English people yeah yeah Um, and and it was brilliant fun (laughs) and now I'm sure I'm gone by my memory I'm sure it was followed up with a big drinking session which maybe (laughs) cancels out everything that I'm saying here the day of paintballing was great fun the paintballing I could take or leave but the drinking (laughs) was absolutely amazing but it is and it's a, it's a load of fun. You go away in a pre-season trip or a, or an Easter break or a po- not so much a post-season trip, but if there's fixtures or training involved in your trip, there's always this discussion beforehand going, lads, do, are, are people, are you packing like bringing out clothes or like going out clothes? And if you are, then whose job is it to find out for the manager? Like, are we getting a night out? It's usually the captain. You have to time that question yeah. very, very carefully because get them on a bad day, it's not going to happen. Yeah. But the things that can happen on the night out like it, they can be hilarious, obviously they can be troublesome. Yes, they can create a load of memories, but the, the the potential for carnage is greatly improved if you're drunk. Yeah, it's true. You can't argue against that. So if you, you then you're trying to tally it up, but how does this fit in with the lifestyle or the what we would require of elite sports? Just think about like. Mark McGee here. The sacrifices that man will make for Scotland. <laughs> um, He's a patriot. But we have, I mean, uh, there are some Irish patriots I can think of. Uh, Brian O'Driscoll, um, Niall Quinn, for instance. I definitely heard this from direct from Niall Quinn. Um, Brian O'Driscoll, I'm pretty sure, says this time that, you know, he values this idea of going for a few drinks every so often. This is like, a, actually, you can't get by without it. I mean, if you, if you were to take it away, this is a hypothetical. I don't know if this has ever really been tried with an Irish sports team of any kind. But if you were to take away the drink and say, no, there's no, you know, play them Gordon Strachan's audio and say, look, come on, you're, you're basically, you, you guys are craving this drug. Essentially, you're drug addicts. And what we're going to tr- do is try and break your dependence well, on this drug. And let's try and relate to each other as human beings, right? We don't need this. We don't need this rot gut stuff to try and to be friends with each other. What do you think would actually happen then? The Clare Hurling team won the All-Ireland Hurling Final with no drink. Really? From one end of the year to the other. And did they have a drink to celebrate? 
Well, it, it turns out a lot of them are like 19 and 20 years old and they're just not that interested in drinking. They don't. But I mean, I, Most I was, of the young men of Ireland who just don't yeah, drink anyway. I was in the, uh, the Clare team hotel the morning after the, uh, the replay, the year they beat Cork in the final in 2013. And I was wandering around seeing all these fresh-faced young lads thinking in Clare gear, thinking, my God, the brothers of... All, the, <laughs> the teenage brothers of all of the hurling team are knocking around the hotel looking very fresh fest and it was like no wait a minute that's the actual team and you know usually you go out to the Ireland hurling or the Ireland final winning hotel and it's total carnage like there are guys who haven't been in bed asleep in the reception like all manner of stuff so I mean like that's I mean that's one example I mean I think that you know the it's not like it's a completely teetotal environment but I mean David Fitzgerald has his thoughts on it and his thoughts are there just shouldn't be any drinks. Yeah. How often have you heard, and, and I think England players did it under Capello, I think Stephen Hunt wrote a piece in the Sunday Independent describing the, the, the month build-up or whatever under Trapattoni as the same. You always hear players saying it was boring, was we were too stifled, we were cooped up, all of those kind of things. Yeah, there was, there actually, was, def- there was definitely, a of, there was a couple of little drinking excursions, definitely in Monte Catini, yeah. Um, were they approved? I mean, were they looked upon with approval? Were, they, were, <laughs> is it, is were it, there written permission yeah. given to these players? Is it, is it better not, to apologise after sure. the event than to, than to ask for permission before the event? Montecatini was a very boring place, to be fair. If you were an 85-year-old Italian woman, this would be heaven. It was, it's essentially a, it's a, it's a spa bath town for elderly Italian ladies. And for Trapattoni, it was the best place. It was like Vegas to Trapattoni. <laughs> but to the, to the he had to get out of there. But again, you can see, God, if, I mean, this is an Irish audience. We don't need to sell the, 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 the benefits of, of, of drinking here. But like, if you're in a place like that or you're cooped up in a hotel, like, drink can just transform the experience. Like, you can turn a really dull environment into a magical world. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, magical what, world. that's what you're up against. Now, Strachan's absolutely on the button. Everything he's saying stacks up. It, it's ludicrous that we're even questioning it. We're talking about elite sports people, highly paid, with a huge job attached to representing their country. Why we're even talking about the fact that they should or shouldn't be allowed to sink a load of pints in the week beforehand. But the, this is the exact conversation they have, you know, the, all the marathon runners at the Olympics, you know. Like, should we actually go for a feed of pints? I was like, three days before the Olympic yeah. marathon final. <laughs> should we go for a few pints just to, you know, relax ourselves? <laughs> yeah. Make sure that out in the road for the 26 miles where, you know, there's a good tea spirit there. Yeah, just to make sure we're okay yeah. with each other. Yeah. Is, is there anything we need to iron out here? Yeah. I imagine if, if Martin O'Neill was to bring in one of these draconian tracking rules, um, he'd probably also demand buy-in from the FAS chief executive, John Delaney. Um, who loves his country a lot and would probably be the first man to sign up uh, to this. Hell of a uh, fortnight John Delaney's had, Richie. But yes. at least he hasn't said anything bad about Wes Hoolahan. No, but there's time. It's a, it's a He's Saturday on a evening kickoff, so uh, plenty of time. <laughs> how do you, how do you, sorry. It's been a remarkable fortnight. I don't know how long this story's been going on for John Delaney. Um it's uh, 16 days since he made his first intervention with his bladder must go. Um, you know, we were fed up to the back teeth with that bladder before before the FIFA arrest. So, yeah, quite a long time. Yeah, I mean, it, it, he's talking about, I mean, he's talking about transparency and, and accountability in football governance. And we, we know 
this week. He's like it's it's almost absurd. It's almost too absurd to be an actual event of of the week. He he contacted, he lobbied members of an, a subcommittee, asking them not to call him up to a committee where he would be asked to publicly account for his actions. Now, bear in mind, this is a man who's promoting accountability in football governance. He's talking about transparency as well, where we know that he has managed to, the FAI has managed to present their accounts in such a way that a loan of 10 million, a payment of 5 million, an additional payment of three and a half or 400 grand has concealed from you. Even if you know it's there, even if you're given the information, this is the amount of the payment, this is who paid it, and this is the reason, here's the accounts. You still won't find it. That's a fellow who's talking about transparency. So from a credibility point of view, I mean, he's gone. Personally, like, he, he's a busted flush at this point. But he'll keep going on. He'll keep giving the interviews. He'll stumble along from from uh, comment to comment, contradicting what he said in previous comments. Um, but he'll remain in the job because that's a setup of the FAI. So no accountability, no transparency. And we're meant to be all OK with this because at some point in this whole shabby affair, we profited five million. No one can point to a legitimate reason as to why FIFA paid it, which if you're going to be consistent in any way, then you can say, well, there's no legitimate reason why you should receive it. Pouring oil on troubled waters. Is that not legitimate? I mean, some, somewhere in that stadium, uh, there are some, a few thousand set platter seats. But, the but because, per- you can give up, because you can come up with plenty of reasons to spend five million, it doesn't mean you have a legitimate reason to receive that five million under these circumstances. Will John Delaney be celebrating, leading celebrations on uh, Saturday night? Do you think we're going to beat Scotland? Oh, God, I hope so. I mean, look, for a moment, let's imagine we don't. Let's imagine we lose. Then immediately, immediately the conversation is about Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane cannot have their contract renewed. It's immediately clear we're not going to be in the next tournament the next few games we're also going to be fourth seeds for the next yeah. uh, for the next draw if we, if we lose or draw yeah. this match and then there's this depressing reality of going wow six games into a qualifying campaign in a group that remember there's three places up for grabs mm. where you could potentially qualify and we're gone so that's the consequences of defeat let's hope to god that's not where the conversation is going to go but that's immediately where it has to go if it's a defeat if it's a win brilliant we're back on track we can possibly get third Okay, Richie, thanks a million for coming in. Cheers, lads. The flame hair, flame hair, flame throw of truth, Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around and bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Owen. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. So look at what actually happens in, in, in after this game. I mean, depending on the results. If Ireland lose the game, they're basically gone. Um... Six points behind, well, five points behind Scotland, but really it's six because of the um, head-to-head thing. Uh, and Poland, we've got four games left, but there's really only two games left because Georgia and Gibraltar are games which everybody wins. If you don't win those, forget it. But really, it's two, two games, games left. to change the position, and the it. two games are Germany at home and Poland away. And you would imagine that the most likely outcome of each of those games is a defeat. So. We can say straight off we lose, that's it. Um, 
drawing again difficult considering the games that we have uh, coming up if they win though and especially if they win by two then uh, it, it actually well we're back ahead of uh, Scotland and we're ahead of them such that if they catch up by one point we're still ahead of them mm. Um that would be uh, that would be huge, but of course we never win these games. It's once in the last fifteen years, I think. Well, Holland and then Slovakia, and they're the games that we've won against um, higher ranked opposition. Yeah, yeah, I know it is. It's kind of uh, it's not an exciting position to be in. I mean, I'm scared about this game. Um, I'm worried about this game, but kind of excited. I I, I would hesitate to say that I'm excited about this game because. There's such a good chance that we either draw or lose this game. I mean, if you were a betting man, you would say it's twice as likely that we get either of those negative results yeah. than it is that we As a football game. man, though, you shouldn't just be all about the results. There's also the football the football game. and Which will also... Well, I mean, we can be more certain about that. Yeah. I mean, I think we know exactly what we're going to get. Well, look, you know, we're going to get to see an Ireland team which maybe, maybe is going to build on the euphoria of that late equaliser against Poland. Um... You know, a long time ago, though, as it seems. Uh, but we're also going to get to see a Scotland team, which appears to be going places uh, under Gordon Strachan. And one man who's certainly excited is Graham Hunter. Uh, he joins us now. Graham, we've just been playing a little bit of uh, your exchange with Gordon Strachan uh, about his rules: no drink, no alcohol, uh, no alcohol for the players, no alcohol for the uh, for the coaches. Uh, he says it's just a fake uh, camaraderie, a fake bravado. I was wondering what was going through your head uh, as he was uh, saying those things. Ah, oh, come on now. That's a, that's a very low blow to start after months and months of not speaking. <laughs> I admit on the podcast that I will occasionally, overnight time, take a thimble full of sherry to help me digest uh, filet mignon. And yeah. I, look, I knew, I knew a little bit about it. I knew that Gordon had gone through um, something of a change as a footballer and that he, he lived very normally as a footballer at Aberdeen and Manchester United in that you drank if you celebrated, um, if there was a drink culture. You probably took part simply to make sure that if you weren't one of the gang, you, you were not an outsider. But I think that particularly at Leeds, the transformation which has led to his position as a manager on no drink began when he understood very, very clearly that he could squeeze the last drops out of his career at a very high level if he lived very, very well. And I don't know if you remember... Um, clearly this was before uh, assistant captains was there to raise the media agenda but there was an idiotic time when God talked about having bananas with his breakfast and the media went like secret to everlasting youth yeah, I remember bananas that, yeah. with his breakfast and remember the bit about seaweed as well I think <laughs> he tried a lot about seaweed so all you had to do was two things and you could live forever and that really cheesed him off at the time. That really upset him. It's like, no, hold on a second. It's a, whole, it's a concept. It's a way of living. So in, in Scottish football, clearly one of the things, one of the many, many things we've done to tie our own feet together is to drink. And when I was growing up, I, I'll admit now, I remember that this was just before Arthur Graham became a teammate of Gordon at, at Aberdeen. I was very proud, very proud indeed, that Arthur Graham and uh, Willie Young of Aberdeen were with Billy Bremner and a couple of others, Joe Harper as well, when they were out in the town after beating Denmark away in about 1973-74, and they went on the rampage, they got drunk, they were thrown out of a nightclub, they went back and they didn't like the SFA president, they found his room in the hotel and they relieved themselves in his wardrobe. 
I remember as a sort of nine-year-old, ten-year-old thing, and that's the way to do it, boys. <laughs> well, we're, we're mad in the blood, you know. Nobody had taught me the wrong way. I just instinctively knew it. And now I've come to the other side and have for a long, long time. And to finish, Ken, what, what Gordon... I'm not telling tales at school in that what Gordon was doing was trying to change a culture whereby he's directly in opposition to a previous Scotland manager, Walter Smith, who at Rangers did inculcate this culture of the team that drinks together wins together. Now, Walter was open and clear about that, that it was a device for unity. And, you know, Walter recorded very, very, very good results with Scotland and went away in Paris and came the closest to qualification we've been since now, with you boys standing in the way. So I'm not saying there's one shining path to truth, but I do believe that Gordon is in the modern vanguard, that he's got it right, and that Scotland, of all countries, can do with that policy to minimise our ability to tip ourselves up. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, in Ireland, I think it's similar to Scotland in this respect. But there is a... There, there, there definitely is also the, the counter argument. I mean, as you as you put the the Gordon in that conversation, is that you know we've been talking about it here. A lot of Irish sportsmen is like, well, actually, it is a it's a good way to sort of get the team, um, get the team together, get to sort of uh, get people talking to each other, uh, break down the the boundaries a little bit. Um, it, I mean, you've been living in Barcelona now for the last twelve years. They don't they seem to be able to do this without drinking uh, with each other pretty successfully. And uh, it does rather look at this point as though that's just been a massive delusion that we've all collectively had for the last 50 or 60 years, that this is a, this is actually an important part of, of working together as a team. I wonder, though, what do you actually do? We, we need, if we're, if we're going to move on from this, we need a bit of help. What do you actually do uh, on, at the times when previously you might have gone and have a, have a few drinks together? What are the options? It's, it's really fine calibration. I don't think... That's what I tried to say, Ken. There's not a a blanket answer to the issues you've raised there. So, for example, you know, teams in leagues where you need to be on guard every minute of every day, <laughs> there are some countries where you don't have to live like that as an elite footballer and somewhere you do. And I think it's also important to point out that when, you know, you know, we talked about this before and you've read it in my books, that when Pep Guardiola um, was on the point of winning the treble, in 2008 9 and he won two trophies, he sent his team out on a, on a massive bender and said, now, now, the gates are up. Now, you've got three days. And he was even more explicit than that. He said, well, go and wipe out. Go and celebrate your triumphs. Go and get them off your shoulders. You've, you've won something. And then when those three days are finished, you're back in full training. It's like a pre-season and we'll build up to Rome. He did it again before Wembley. And it worked for him. For some other teams... For example, Manchester United won, but I remember the shock um, when in the build-up to the treble in 1999, there was a big bender sanctioned by Sir Alex Ferguson and it ended up with Roy Keane in, in, in the jail in Manchester before um, the FA Cup final and the, the Champions League final. So what I'm saying is Pep Guardiola had it right for that group of players, for that era, but it won't necessarily be right for everybody. And I think as well, you have to differentiate between you started talking about Scotland as an international side and also this concept of should we drink together as a club. I think there's room for it. And I think that what you're always, always talking about, Ken, is what your players feel like and act like. If, you've, if you're a man-manager, this, this, this is where the, the coaching bit must be put separately. If you're a man-manager and you know your group is full of players who have chosen to be with you and have chosen to be with you irrespective of big salaries because they know the culture is tough because they know that they're working for a coach who's going to win them things, they will self-regulate. 
And that's the key answer to your question, self-regulation. If you've got, a, a, if you're a manager where you're looking to say, I want, you know, the whole to be greater than the sum of the parts, then fine. You can pull out all kinds of trick psychology, like saying, lads, every Wednesday you get a night out, or every second Wednesday, or every third win in a row, which is a tactic that Pep Guardiola used with the B team. We take them out for a nice drink and a, and, a, and, a, and a meal paid by him with the Barca B team every time they won, I think, three or five in a row. So like, you have to apply different psychology to different playing groups and different cultures. And I think at the baseline of what you and I have talked about, the Celts, not alone, maybe the Northern Scandinavians have a voice in this, the Celts not only have a drinking culture, we're very proud of it. And getting rid of it or, or managing it differently is a hell of a task for anybody who comes in and tries to do it. And Gordon will have his difficulties. And Gordon raised that in the podcast. Hmm. And he raised that his staff weren't too pleased about it. And he said, no, listen, it applies to you as well. And that's another key. Do be able to be seen to be doing what you ask your players to do. That's absolutely key in any form of leadership. Yeah. I mean, whatever Strachan is doing with Scotland, and this is only one aspect of it, it certainly seems to be working. I mean, in Ireland, we... Uh, at the moment seem to be really low on collective confidence. It's, it's almost as though the team still hasn't quite recovered from what happened against Spain in the Euros. Just this total destruction of, of the team and of the team's self-respect and belief that the team could ever actually be a good team compared to some of the real teams out there. Scotland have been through a fairly low time uh, over the past 10 or 15 years. But when we saw them against Ireland uh, last year, you could see that there's a kind of a spark back in their play. There's a kind of a, a daring back in their in their football. The, the beginnings of, of a sense of, you know, maybe Scotland, maybe we're back, maybe it is time for us to qualify for a tournament again. What what is is this? Do you credit this to Gordon Strachan? Is this a cyclical? Is this a cyclical thing? Was this bound to happen? Um, but if it wasn't bound to happen, what's how Strachan managed to achieve this? Because we badly need somebody to do it with our team. I think you've already put your finger on ninety percent of it, and that Scotland started on the the downward slide of the U long before Ireland did. Where were you when you suffered that that crash that has battered the Irish groups? Because you were at a championship which you qualified for. And if it hadn't been for the, you know, the get turned into a nice five million, sorry, and the basketball incident, you'd have qualified for another one. Now let's contrast that honestly with where Scotland have been. Not close. Embarrassment. So the simple fact is that we've been down longer. There's been a greater clarity about our limitations and a dare venture, which is maybe a little bit stupid ahead of a game against a side that, you know, I can't say honestly, I'm certain that we'll win at all. But, I think that Scotland currently maybe have one or two more players of genuine, decent level creative ability. Not 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 a huge margin of our own, but I do think that we're at that cycle where one or two players in our squad know how to play football. And I'd also say that one of the things that Gordon Strachan is able has been able to do almost everywhere. If you want to take the exception of Coventry and Middlesbrough, Middlesbrough was just brutal. He was he was cooked as a, as a psychologically, physically, mentally. He was done in and he wasn't ready for it. If you take his other clubs, he has got this ability to lead men, to make them feel differently, not only about themselves or their skills, but their clarity of purpose, their tactical um, application, the tactical rigour is a better word. He is, in, in this instance, he's taken a Scotland situation where I, I think footballers were not excited about representing the national team anymore. It was something that you did for profile, for your sponsors, a couple of extra bucks, but it, was, it didn't matter the earth. He's changed that, and I, and I understand why. He's a very, very charismatic man. Added to the fact that he's got talent, I'd give you a lot of hope 
for the fact that you've got somebody who is very, very similar, um, well, talented, charismatic, and can make people believe in their purpose again. So whether it happens this weekend, and if you beat us, you can say, hey, Graham, you are right, and it's cost your nation. But I think that the cycle is about the fact that Ireland have been high on ability, on qualification, on self-belief longer than Scotland can. And we, we just fell further, fell faster, and there's a slight upturn now. There's nothing more than that. Yeah, just lastly, lastly, Graham, the history of Scotland as a football nation, I mean, it, it is, uh, Scotland does have a bigger history than Ireland. I mean, there was a lot of qualifications back then. There was a lot of great players uh, going back over, you know, a century, a lot of great Scottish players. Do you think that's in any way uh, a kind of a factor in Scotland's resurgence, the fact that they realise they're, they're part of this tradition? I mean, I think, for instance, of, say, the Italian national team, which some, somehow seems to be able to regenerate almost instantly, even when everybody says, oh, this Italy's never been worse. But somehow the fact of being Italy out there can seems to make a difference to these guys. I think of Welsh rugby, for instance, has been through some pretty low points and can almost immediately kind of rise out of nowhere. Um, and you, you feel that, you know, belonging to, you know, a kind of a great tradition is, is actually part of that. I wonder if you think maybe that does um, come into the thinking of these 20-something Scotland footballers? Look, I, I honestly um, would love to buy into that. Um, it's, it's the type of idea that we would maybe have propagated in our media for many years. It doesn't fit with my understanding of my own country, albeit, Ken, I've lived abroad for 14 years. But what I see, and when I talk to the, the people who I believe in in Scottish football, I think we've almost had to go back to re-educating and reinventing ourselves. Um, I think that we are we epitomise the drain away of what football used to be like boxing. I can get off the streets. Football is my future. Football is my only way to not be working um, in a mine or in a factory or to be on the door. I think people used to believe that in Scotland because the working class culture hadn't been fractured. I think that when, we, when that culture was fractured under the Thatcher government in particular and when people became lazier and um, dependent on drugs or far more dependent on alcohol and there were computer games. If you walk around the streets of Scotland now, and this, this just touched on, if anybody cares to listen to the podcast, Gordon talks about kids maybe being in, decent kids of, of reasonable ability, being in a football system which will train them slowly and not give them touches of the ball and talk to them all the time and then take them to play a game and they'll maybe travel two and a half hours to play a game, touch the ball 12 times, travel two and a half hours back and then they won't learn that the ball is their friend. Now, what has happened, I believe, rather than Scotland simply having a capacity to reinvent itself because we were one of the initiators of football because we, we in club terms in particular, we've done great things over the, over the years and we had leaders and ball players. That, that isn't a natural thing. I don't think that's in the DNA, no. Um, I, and I think that the very thing that caused that, the need um, to get out of poverty, the need to, also the need to follow. Uh, you know, if you, if you think about the, the Irish phenomenon over the last, say, 30 years, there have been, there's been greatness to emulate, to follow, for kids to say, not only do I want to be like Liam Brady or do I want to be like Paul McGraw or Roy Keane or whoever you want to name, I'm going to dedicate time and I'm going to sacrifice to become like that. Now, I don't think that, I think that culture has been eroded, battered even in Scotland, because people started training kids the wrong way. We started to not be successful at club level. We started to not be successful at international level. And above all, we started to not produce players who shone. The kids went, I don't care about the temptations. I'm going I'm to be like him, and I'm going to get my money like him. I'm going to earn like him. I'm going to be famous like him, but I'm going to play like him. 
I think that there are people now in Scotland, I genuinely believe there are some people, Arch Girls, Kemmelson, Scott is one of them, who are beginning to teach footballers to do things differently again. Thank God for that. And it'll take a long time to come right. And maybe along the way there'll be setbacks. But it's, again, it, I don't believe in, in the history or the DNA of it. It's not, it's not innate. It was caused by something. Those things went away. And you're going to either have to replicate those things, which I hope, you know, you don't want people living in misery and poverty, or you're going to have to find out a way to, to replicate them differently. And, and I, I believe that's where my faith that there might be ball players and leaders and winners in Scottish football coming down the line comes from. That's brilliant, Graham. I hope you enjoy the game on Saturday just a little <laughs> bit less than we do. <laughs> that's a fair summary, and because I love you so, I ain't going to argue. Enjoy the game. You'll never, we'll never beat the Irish, will we? No, probably, probably not. Good luck, Graham. Talk to you soon. Bye. Good luck. And he is my second captain. Second captain, that's uh-huh. a humorous competition. I saw that. Important man for my selection. Yeah, good to hear from Graham there, and I suppose at least the Scotland experience shows that no matter how dark things get, there's always the prospect of in ten to fifteen years. <laughs> ten, the, the, ten to fifteen at years. Some stage, if you they live may to see qualify. it, <laughs> I mean, at the moment they're third. In a, are they third? Uh, yeah, uh, second or third. Okay, well they're engaged in a four-team dogfight for three places at UEFA twenty sixteen with twenty four teams in it. So I, I would say that the Scottish dawn hasn't. I mean. It's not quite, you know, the... A tartan sky. Yeah, not quite yet. I mean, we're still hoping to beat these guys and then deny them qualification so that in, like, the historically the easiest competition to qualify in the history of international football. So, yeah. you know. That is, this, that is a slightly depressing thing. The first time we have a 2014 Euros and we're already looking as though we could be out of it by uh, September. But, <laughs> you know, hopefully on Monday when we talk again uh, after this game, we're going to have a lot of... Uh, a lot of happy things to talk about. In the meantime, though, we have another show out today. What's in that one, Karen? Uh We have Oisín McConville and Anthony Moyles talking about actually a very good uh, weekend of uh, Gaelic football this weekend. Goal against Mio, Donegal against Armagh. Uh, two Munster football semi-finals and two Leinster quarterfinals. So loads of uh, good games on. Uh, a lot of people's counties in action for the first time. And we also have uh, US Murph telling us about how LeBron James is losing teammates left, right and centre in the NBA playoffs. Uh, he's even more of a one-man team than he's ever been in his entire career of being a one-man team. And uh, they're still going and taking it to the Golden State Warriors, our beloved Golden State What's Warriors. What's the score now? It's 2-1 after, the... after two games to the Cavaliers. So they oh, need right. two wins in the last four games to be crowned NBA champs. So... Uh, we had a great chat with uh, Brian about that as well. So all that coming up in the next uh, couple of hours. Well, listen after that one uh, later on. That's all for today's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. And um, thank you, Ken. What does Owen do at this point? He, oh, he we says do thank this, you. You know that really lame thanks. He says uh, thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Ken. And thanks again for listening. Bye. FIFA made a movie recently, did uh, they? John Delaney could run anything. They did. They did. About themselves. Yeah, about themselves. Oh, that's ego, isn't it? He could run FIFA. Certainly better than Sat Blatter. Yeah, that is, that's incredible, Eagle, but the real movie's on its way. 
Yeah, I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too, don't forget that. No, no, don't forget that. In 2009, I called him an embarrassment to FIFA and an embarrassment to himself. And I, and I said it to him across the table, just like I'm talking to you. You're one or two expletives. He said, no one speaks to me like that. And you said? And I said, what well, I do. And that was it. We're going to expletives. And I just asked me to move on. It was an extraordinary moment. She, she was here, she'd tell you, just stare at her for seven or eight seconds. And I said, move on now, please. And then he moved. When I went in and told him how I felt about him, yeah. and there were some expletive views. We came to an agreement. It's a very good agreement there for you. And we've used the figure there. Well done to you. Second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. <laughs>